is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Thank you for this historic chance to join the highest court, to work with brilliant colleagues, to inspire future generations, and to ensure liberty and justice for all. That was the voice of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson speaking to members of the Senate Judiciary Committee during her opening statement for this week's Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Good day and uh, welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. So as Judge Jackson said in that clip, this is an historic moment. I've said the same thing each day this week as we have prepared to watch her answer questions and talk about her background and her judicial philosophy in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. She is the first African-American woman nominated to join the other eight justices on uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court, the first person of uh, color, uh, uh, a woman, uh, to, to go through this process, to sit in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and answer those questions. Um, for the vast majority of legal scholars and others who know Judge Jackson's career, there really are not a lot of questions about her qualifications uh, or her preparation to serve on the court. This is someone who graduated magna cum laude from Harvard, then from Harvard Law School, where she graduated cum laude. Uh, she's a former public defender, and right now she is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. That is uh, kind of the, the junior bench, I guess, for the Supreme Court. So many of the judges who sit on that D.C. Circuit uh, are, are, are candidates for uh, spots on the Supreme Court. But, but all of that hasn't stopped Republicans in the U.S. Senate from trying to both politicize the confirmation process and try to impeach some of Judge Jackson's qualifications. Uh, we're going to spend the hour today talking about these confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson and what they mean for the court, what they mean for our country, and what they mean for future generations. And of course, we want to hear from you as well. Are you watching these hearings? Uh, what are you thinking as you're watching these hearings? What did you think as you watched yesterday as uh, senators from both sides of the aisle began to question Judge Jackson. Really different questions coming from the GOP side of the committee than from the Democratic side. Some really obnoxious, I think, uh, questions coming from a few senators uh, whose whose goal clearly was not just to politicize this, of course, but but to really try to impugn Judge Jackson on very shaky grounds. Uh, give us a call and let us know what you think of all of that. What do you think of uh, maybe getting the first African-American woman nominated to the Supreme Court confirmed? Uh, what do you think about the court itself and uh, its legitimacy in these really trying times politically in, in our country? As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter 
then hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We've got two really great uh, voices with us today to help talk about uh, what's going on in Washington. Uh, Barb McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. Barb, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Yeah, Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here. Also with us is Jelani Jefferson Exum. She is the dean of the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. Dean Exum, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Yeah. So, Barb, I'm going to start with you. It seems to me that sometimes during these hearings, especially right now, uh, we seem to learn a little more about the Senate and the members of the Senate Judiciary <laughs> Committee than we do about the person who's nominated uh, to, to join the court. They, they have taken on a very odd dynamic where there isn't a whole lot of actual substantive discussion of what the nominee thinks or how they might approach the job, but there is an awful lot of weird showmanship, I'll call it, uh, on the part of senators, uh, generally of the GOP, I think uh, it's fair to say. Uh, this, is a, this, is an, uh, this is a stage for them that, uh, that they just can't resist. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Sadly, that is what these confirmation hearings have devolved to. Um, I think senators correctly assess that you know, the hearing went 13 hours yesterday, that most people are not going to watch for 13 hours. But if they can pound their fist and make some point that serves up some red meat to the voters back home, then maybe they can get a slot on the 6 o'clock news uh, you know, showing how much they're standing up for someone's rights. And for some of these senators, this is an audition for a presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. And so you'll notice oftentimes they'll give a little speech and there's not much of a question there. And they'll just say something like, you know, do you agree with that? Um, the answer really doesn't matter. It is the asking of the question and that little clip that they can use in a political ad or on social media uh, to show you know, just how conservative and far right they are uh, seems to be the point of the exercise. Yeah. Uh, when, when we think, though, about uh, nominees to the court and what we might want to hear from them about what they would do, I, um, I, I feel like the answers that, uh, that nominees give have gotten narrower and narrower over the last 20 or 30 years. You used to actually have justices discuss substantive issues of the law and, and talk about uh, you know, different areas of law and the way they, they, they think about them. Right now, it seems like the safest thing to say, of course, is uh, that you're basically an umpire and that uh, you'll interpret the law with some degree of neutrality. Um, but we don't get much more. Barb, I wonder what you think we've learned, if anything, uh, in this first day of questioning about Judge Jackson. Well, I think we learned that she has a lot of stamina. She was able to sit there for 13 hours and take an awful lot of nonsense from these senators, as we described. And and frankly, that alone is good, right? I mean, judicial temperament is an important thing. Uh, Judges and justices in the Supreme Court need to be good listeners. So I think we learned that about her, that she remained gracious and patient throughout this questioning. I think there were opportunities. You know, what you often saw, Stephen, is a Republican senator would ask some loaded series of questions about her record on uh, 
serving as a public defender mm -hmm. or her sentencings in certain kinds of cases and, and cherry pick to try to paint her as either a left-wing radical extremist or someone who's soft on crime or a judicial activist in some way. And then the Republican senators would give her a chance to kind of um, explain the rest of the story. And I think it was in those moments, many of which, by the way, don't get headlines in the media, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. you know, I think you know, clicks and uh, sound bites tend to be the more explosive moments. But it was in those moments when she was allowed an opportunity to explain. You know, for example, uh, we saw Ted Cruz cherry pick some sentences in cases of child pornography mm -hmm. and trying to demonstrate that she is a, an ally of child pornographers, I guess, which also feeds into this whole right-wing conspiracy theory about how uh, you know, Hillary Clinton ran a child sex shop under a pizza parlor. You know, it's all part of that whole QAnon nonsense. So I think, you know, they're trying to feed that narrative. But when the Republicans uh, uh, would finish and the Democratic senators would say, do you want to explain your full record on child pornography cases? She would explain that sometimes I sentence below and sometimes I sentence above the guidelines because that's only one data point. And my job as a judge is to look at all of the factors. So I think it was actually in those quieter moments when we learned more about her that she is a person who's faithful to the law. She is not an extremist in any way. She's a really smart and careful judge who I think will do bring that same sensibility to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dean Exum, uh, I, I want to talk a little about something that the Republicans were saying yesterday, and, and Barb just referenced it. Uh, they're trying to make this case that Judge Jackson is, quote, soft on crime, in part by talking about um, these uh, sentences that she that she gave out uh, under the guidelines uh, and under what prosecutors were sometimes asking for, but also talking about uh, her, you know her her time as a public defender, as a federal public defender. Y your research focus is on sentencing law, so I'm really curious to know what you make of uh, the arguments against Judge Jackson that GOP senators are making, and then what you make of, of her record and what her experience will bring to uh, the highest court. Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> because I have quite a bit to say here, but I'll try to make it, um, make it short. I have to tell you that as somebody who has studied sentencing, um, been a sentencing scholar for the last 14-plus years, um, that it has been incredibly frustrating to watch the cherry picking that's happened in these um, in these nomination hearings, and to hear things taken so out of context that um, someone who's not as well versed in sentencing law and in criminal um, justice law and policy, it's so easy to be misled. Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciate the deliberate deliberateness um, with which Judge Jackson really answered questions. She, she answered them slowly and thoughtfully, and she really explained things. So I'll say this. I'll start with her record as a public defender. I think that that is one of the highest honors, if you will, um, highest supporters of our Constitution to actually step in to defend people who, um, and to stand up for their, their presumption of innocence. Mm -hmm. It is a constitutional guarantee. It is something that we are called to do um, as a nation is to give defense to those who are accused of crimes. And so I see it in no way as an indication of being soft on crime or um, being lenient um, toward people who have committed offenses, but instead it's standing up for the Constitution. It's a tough, tough job to do. And I really take my hat off to anybody who does public defense work. Um, it is an honorable occupation, and it's something that really gives Judge Jackson such depth. 
Um, when it when it comes to the sentencing issues that were raised, especially around child pornography mm-hmm. and her sentencing below the sentencing guidelines for some of those offenses, I think the first place to explain really is that the sentencing guidelines since 2005 are advisory. The Supreme Court mandated that the guidelines become advisory, and we can get into the reasons why. But that that's really important to note that the, that it's actually unconstitutional um, in our current federal sentencing guideline scheme for judges to treat them as mandatory. Mm -hmm. They're just guidance. So judges are supposed to calculate the guidelines, use them as a starting point, but then there's a long list of sentencing factors that judges must consider before imposing a sentence. And because of all of the issues that Judge Jackson so eloquently explained with the federal sentencing guidelines around around child pornography cases, in two-thirds of the cases across the nation, judges sentence below the guideline range for these cases because the guidelines don't reflect the things that judges care about um, when they're trying to fashion a fair sentence. And I think that's just a really important context that's been missing in um, the way that she's been questioned in these hearings. Yeah. Uh, When when they say that she's, quote, soft on crime, what they're saying is, uh, I think specifically, that she's underneath the, the guidelines. And as you point out, these guidelines are are advisory now. Uh, one of the things that I think is lurking in the background of this that, that that didn't get a lot of discussion yesterday is the the uneven application of sentencing in the federal system as it is in many state systems that that um, led to the guidelines in the first place and then in some ways led to making the guidelines more advisory. But but really the issue is that the criminal justice system is much tougher on certain people, uh, on African Americans, for instance, than it is on on others. And these are these are some of the factors that judges are trying to take into account often uh, when they when they're coming up with these sentences. And and I was a little frustrated, I guess, sitting there thinking this was an opportunity to talk about that. Of course, uh, I don't think the GOP senators really want to talk about it, but it was it was this moment where that could have taken kind of center stage. Uh, Dean Exum, I wonder if you were thinking the same thing. Right. That I mean, that's very true. But you hit on it earlier. This has been really it's it's become um, political theater. These nomination hearings, where um, oftentimes senators are really taking this as a moment to kind of speak to their base. Um, they're not so much questioning the the nominee or really trying to understand the nominee's point of view. It's really just for um, they're speaking to their voters. And th- so Judge Jackson has to then be very careful. Um, she's answering only the questions that are posed to her because she doesn't want to overspeak and give an opportunity for someone to, you know, sort of take that and get back on their soapbox and and kind of air their grievances, a lot of what we saw um, some of the senators do. And so some of these moments where we can really have some commentary on what really happens in our criminal justice system are missed. But I will point out that when it comes to the sentencing guidelines um, and and what sentencing judges are supposed to do, because the guidelines are only, only advisory, what they must do is ensure that their sentences satisfy certain sentencing factors, and one of those factors is the need to avoid unwarranted sentencing disparities. And so that's where judges, this is a requirement, judges have to think about that. Mm -hmm. So they're not supposed to just blindly follow guidelines. They're supposed to sit back and say, okay, if I issue this sentence in this particular case, 
is am I feeding into unwarranted sentencing disparities where I'm where I'm treating defendants who have committed similar offenses um, in similar ways? Am I treating them differently? And the law says they cannot do that. And sometimes the guidelines, because they're just numbers and factors that are added in, um, they don't capture that. And so judges rightfully, justfully, and in fact are required to to um, choose another sentence outside of the sentencing guidelines in order to have a truly reasonable and proportionate sentence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Barb McQuaid, uh, you were the U.S. attorney here in uh, the Eastern District of Michigan. Uh, I, I wonder what you made of the, the back and forth about sentencing and, and guidelines. One of the things that the Republican senators seemed to object to was the idea that Judge Jackson was departing from the requests that prosecutors were making in terms of, of sentences. Yeah, everyone in the courtroom has a role to play. The prosecution, of course, is an advocate on behalf of the prosecution, the government. They're the party bringing the case. The defense attorney is there to advocate on behalf of the defendant. Uh, they are usually arguing at opposite ends of the spectrum of sentencing. It is the judge's job to be neutral, to listen to both of those arguments, and then impose the sentence that is um, sufficient but no greater than necessary to uh, address the crime and then in considering, as Dean Axma said, a number of factors, and those are the needs for deterrence, the needs for public safety, the rehabilitative needs, the mm. needs to de deter others. And so thinking about all of those things, the guidelines are one data point, but a judge needs to impose a sentence on all of those things. So the fact that a judge does not agree with a prosecutor in every case is appropriate and not unusual. There are many times I went to court and argued one position and a judge imposed a sentence that was less than the, 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 the place I was requesting. Um, sometimes it's more. Sometimes it's right at it. It's the judge's job to take all of those facts into consideration, the arguments of both parties, and impose a sentence. I also will note that in child pornography cases, um, it is not unusual for judges to impose a sentence that is lower than the guideline range. Hmm. Um, in fact, <clears throat> there are, uh, I, I read three Trump appointees who had similar records that um, this, this Senate passed without question. So I think the focus on this issue is a red herring. I think it is designed to get people like us talking about it instead of her other immense qualifications. I think it is what will make the rounds on social media um, in right-wing circles. You know, I'm sure there are Facebook posts today uh, with Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley pounding the table about um, her, her record in child pornography cases to make the case that, and again, it's not about her. She's just a vehicle for bashing Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. Yeah, if you elect Democrats in the midterms, they will um, uh, coddle child pornographers, just like Hillary Clinton did with her Pizzagate, uh, pizza parlor, sex trafficking ring. Um, it's all a lie. It's all false. It's all a red herring. And instead, what we should be focusing on is, is this person qualified to sit on the Supreme Court? And the answer is an unequivocal yes. And so that's why they devolve into uh, these sideshows that they can use to score political points. Yeah. All right, coming up, we're going to continue this conversation with Barb McQuaid and Jelani Jefferson Exum about Judge Katanji Brown Jackson and her confirmation hearings in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee in Washington. We want to continue to hear from you as well. We've got a number of social media comments already on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we'll, we'll get to some of those. We also will get to the phones, 313-577-1019. Call and tell us if you're listening or watching 
the confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson in Washington. What you make of all of the questions that she's facing, what you make of her performance, what you make of the idea of adding an African-American woman for the very first time to the nation's highest court. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. on the front of the Supreme Court building, equal justice under law, are a reality and not just an ideal. That again was Judge Katanji Brown Jackson speaking to members of the Senate Judiciary Committee in Washington during her confirmation hearings for a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guests this hour are Barb McQuaid, a law professor at the University of Michigan and former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, also co-host of the Sisters-in-Law podcast. Also with us is Jelani Jefferson-Exum. She is the dean of the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. We're talking about uh, these confirmation hearings, what we're learning, what we're learning about Judge Jackson, uh, what we're learning about the senators who are questioning her, and what all this means uh, for the future of uh, the court, for the future of our country. As always, we want to hear from you as well. Are you watching or listening to the hearings? And a note, you can listen to those hearings by going to WDET.org and clicking there. We are live streaming uh, those hearings uh, every day. Um, Are are you paying attention to this? And, And give us a sense of what you're what you're learning here, what you're taking away from the questions that uh, Judge Jackson is fielding, and of course the answers that uh, she's offering. Uh, Give us a sense of what you think of the court and the idea that soon, it seems, we will have the first African-American woman uh, to sit there uh, with the other eight justices. Uh, Also give us a sense of what you think of this whole process, the confirmation hearings. Uh, that take place. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, uh, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Um, Let's start today with Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Thank you. You know, there is something that is very distasteful about the nice, nasty approach that the Republicans have. (laughs) Uh, They give a compliment that contains a slam. And one of them that is most notable to me is uh, uh, when they tell her how articulate she is. Mm -hmm. That has often been uh, a a semi-compliment that I've heard. Mm -hmm. And my response is usually... I'm a native speaker of English. <laughs> yeah, well, and and Bernadette, you're you're, you're right. Uh, that is a really condescending way of, I think, addressing African Americans, and and we see that a lot. Um, Jelani, XM, I'm, I I wonder what you make of the racial context of 
uh, of these hearings um, and the way in which Judge Jackson is being questioned. I see a lot of people on social media saying, look, uh, a, a white person would not face these kinds of questions, would not face the tone that uh, that Judge Jackson is hearing from from GOP senators. What 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 do you make of that? You know, I think that um, certainly every black person, and I'll, I'll speak here as a, as a black woman, we all know that we step into spaces and um, have had that feeling mm-hmm. that um, we're being treated differently, um, that expectations are different. So just to, to think about what the um, what the listener just brought up about it being mentioned that she's articulate. Of course she is, right? <laughs> How could she she's not highly, be? <laughs> she's highly educated. She's had a career um, as a judge. She's, of course she is. Um, so it's these things that should just be givens that um, often we, when we find ourselves in spaces, it's like um, it's a surprise. It's a surprise to be educated. It's a surprise to be well-spoken. It's a surprise. And, um, and those are the things that I think sort of across America, um, certainly black women, I would say most likely many people of color, were just that resonated with them when they hear those words because we've been in those spaces where our qualifications have been seen as a surprise rather than a given. Yeah. And, um, and there is a sense of that throughout the hearings. You know, it's, it's, it's impossible to know how much is um, sort of embedded in people's biases, how much is unconscious, how much is conscious. Some of it is intentional, but how much is unintentional, it, it's unknown. However, we all, we, we feel it. It's the reality of our lives. Um, and it is, it's, we're, we're seeing it on display. Someone who is so, so qualified, mm-hmm. overqualified if it's possible <laughs> to be overqualified mm-hmm. for the Supreme Court when stacked up against um, previous justices and current justices still having the questions about her qualifications, yeah. but it, it, it is our reality. Mm-hmm. It is. It absolutely is. Uh, Barbara McQuaid, I, I also took note yesterday of uh, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, uh, who brought up a speech that Judge Jackson gave at the law school there in Ann Arbor, in which she brought up uh, journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project. And he tried to tie this to these arguments that are going on uh, about that project, but also this idea of critical race theory, which, again, was was brought up uh, in the hearings, I thought, in a, in a context in which it was either intentionally or unintentionally really misunderstood uh, in terms of what it actually is. But but I wonder what you made of, of that exchange and that attempt to tie her to this argument over over CRT. This is the Senate Judiciary Committee version of claiming that Barack Obama is a Muslim. <laughs> it is a win-win question for them that uh, you know doesn't have a basis in fact, but it's hard to come up with a good answer, right? Because on the one hand, if you say, no, he's not a Muslim, which is the truth, mm-hmm. it suggests that you think there's something wrong with being Muslim, right? Like that's a bad thing in some way. When of course it's, it is simply one of the religions represented in this country that should get equal status with every other religion or the absence of religion. And so just that by throwing the question out there, you suggest that you, know, you, know, you get people talking like, I think Barack Obama's a Muslim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he, he finds himself in an awkward position of having to deny it. It's the same thing with regard to critical race theory. To ask her, what do you think about critical race theory? So number one, um, it is not the boogeyman that people make it out to be. I have books on critical race theory. It is simply the uh, focus 
of racism that has developed in the history of the law. And what else would you expect from a nation founded on racism? It was embedded in our Constitution, and we had centuries of Jim Crow laws and overt discrimination. And isn't it valid to explore what remnants and relics of racism persist in our society today so that we can work to move toward a more perfect union? What could be more American than that? So that's what it is. Um, to then say, you spoke about it favorably. You talked about the 1619 project. Well, yeah, because it's this good thing, right? And it's, it's a valid, useful exercise in exploring uh, our systems of, of criminal justice. Mm -hmm. um, uh, on the other hand, I thought she deftly uh, did say, but it's not part of what I do as a judge. Um, I don't bring critical race theory into my work as a judge. I'm not a legal scholar. I am a, a judge who decides cases. I look at the facts. I look at the law. Uh, I look at the arguments of the parties, and I make a decision. And so, again, I think, um, you know, we, we don't ask white nominees to the court what they think about critical race theory. This is, uh, you know, black people promoting black people and making white people feel bad for being white. It's all about white victimhood. And I think, again, it's all about grandstanding for the voters back home. Um, and it is, you know, part of that racial divide that politicians have used since the days of Nixon to try to bring together coalitions of wealthy white voters and poor white voters. Mm -hmm. um, because if they lose part of that uh, to the Democratic Party, then they lose elections. And so you need to hold on to that, that group by playing into racial fears and racial stereotypes. And I say shame on them for doing that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Bernadette, really appreciate the call and, uh, and your insights there. Let's go next to Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, what's on your mind? Uh, hi, Stephen, and uh, hello to your guest. All right, so I, um, I read an article recently about Justice Breyer, and the writer surmised that a thought that guides him um, is, does this decision promote democracy? Mm -hmm. And I found that so interesting. Um, so if I look through that lens, I say yes to Judge Brown-Jackson. I believe she would make decisions that promote democracy. Mm, yeah. Uh, and in fact, that... Um that theory or, 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 I guess, interpretation of, of Justice Breyer's approach to the work is, is, is I, think, I think, really well explained in his own, his own book uh, called Active Liberty um, that, uh, that lays out this idea that um, if something is growing the franchise of democracy in our, in our nation, is expanding it, is including more people, then I think that, that he looks at it differently than something that is restricting or excluding. Um, uh, Barb McQuaid, of course, Judge Jackson clerked for Stephen Breyer, uh, who is the justice that she would replace. That's something that actually happens not terribly infrequently on, on the court. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts, for instance, uh, uh, clerked for Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, who he replaced. Uh, what about this idea of her philosophy and how close it might be to, to what Justice Breyer has done and that influence that, that justices pick up from the justices that they may have clerked for? I think this is such an interesting question because I think this was a subtext that was going on all day. I think that Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson 
um, will not allow anyone to label her, to define her. She is very much her own woman. And so many questions were about your judicial philosophy. You know, are you a textualist? Are you an originalist? Do you, is every case through the lens of democracy, whatever it is, you know, the, ju the judge she clerked, justice she clerked for. And no doubt all of us are amalgamations of everyone we've ever met. You know, everyone influences us and touches us in some way. But what she said is my North Star is my role as a judge. Uh, I, I stay in my lane. I know that there are policymakers and they do their thing and there are certain things that are the province of Congress. My job is to stay in my lane. I start from a neutral point and I look at the facts and the law, precedents, the text of a statute, and the legal arguments made by the parties. And then I decide the case. So I thought it was really interesting. And you know, for someone who is uh, such a first, first African-American woman to uh, serve on the Supreme Court, you know, graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, where I'm sure she was in a minority, a clerk on the US Supreme Court, where I know she was in a minority. Um, this is somebody who's been defying labels all her life. This is someone who does not let anyone stereotype her or define her. She defines herself. And I think she did the same, stepping out of the shadow of Justice Breyer. You know, I'm not Breyer 2.0. I'm Katanji Brown Jackson 1.0. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Melissa, really appreciate the call and the comments there. Let's go to Phyllis and Warren. Phyllis, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hi. Uh, my comments are in regard to the state of the nation in listening to these um, uh, interactions on this uh, hearing. Mm -hmm. Why are we so stupid? Why do we elect these kinds of representatives <laughs> to go to the government of the United States and run this country. Mm. It is unfortunate that every American doesn't decide that electing this justice to the Supreme Court or this judge to the Supreme Court is on our shoulders, every one of us. And if we don't go vote and get some intelligent mindful thinkers on our Congress, we will not have the kind of country that we want. This justice and the other justices of the Supreme Court are in that final position in our, our leadership, and we don't need to have these mindless politicians, these very stupid <laughs> people who are running this country, being the ones to decide for us they don't go back on weekends and have coffee hours with their people. They don't know what the public thinks. They only know what they want, and they use this as a uh, jumping-off point for any other up in their career. And I'm embarrassed. I'm yeah. angry and embarrassed because I would love this judge. She is fantastic. Yeah. Phyllis, I, I really appreciate the call and, and that insight into this process and and kind of uh, looking at, at it as a mirror, perhaps, on our politics and on us. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Dean Exum, I, I want to give you a chance to respond to Phyllis, but, but I want to also kind of cast that, that eye that she's putting on the Congress also on the court. I mean, we, we, we kind of sit at a pivotal moment of, of legitimacy and questions about legitimacy of the court and the way that the political branches interact with the court and have over the last five or six years really, I think, has done a lot of damage to the court's credibility. Right. And, you know, bringing 
the last caller um, and this this um, and the caller before bringing their comments together, you know, th- this is a moment where we do we should be reflective about our government, about um, the legitimacy of our representative government, and also our courts. And that comment about Justice Breyer making decisions that promote democracy, it, I just want to point out that Judge Jackson's very presence on the Supreme Court is a promotion of democracy. And when we think about the legitimacy of the court, her her nomination and then her ultimate confirmation will do so much to legitimize the court by making it more representative of America. And, you know, if we just think about history, 233 years, um, 115 justices, never having a black woman on the Supreme Court. We'll have our first public defender on the Supreme Court. I mean, this is really, really um, a major point in history. And what it does is brings a perspective to the court that has been missing in the court's entire history. And the excitement that I have about that, I can't even express it. (laughs) Um, And just thinking about what she will add, the richness that she will ha- add to conversations. There have been questions about, you know, the makeup of the court and the kind of 6-3 split and will she really be able to offer majority opinions. And I don't know. You know, I don't know the answer to that. But what I know is that she'll be in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in for that the first way, time, right? She will have, the... Correct. She'll have a major role in finding places of commonality. Even if she's not writing all of the majority opinions, she's, she's affecting them at the fringes, at the edges. Um, and so she is important. Her presence is important. And her very existence on the court, her very presence is a promotion of democracy and something that, you know, I'm, of course, excited about. But I think is really a moment of excitement that should be shared by all Americans. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I always kind of pause and, and, and insert this idea into people's heads, too, when they're thinking about this. The court, forget about just its membership in terms of justices, but in terms of the lawyers who argue cases there, in terms of the clerks who are chosen to help the justices with their work. I mean, it, it really is um, a very white institution. It's I, I, when, when I was covering the court in the early 2000s, I used to say it was the whitest place in Washington, which is really saying something. Um, the idea that an African-American woman will now join that bench or is expected to is is a bigger milestone uh, because of how white the court is uh, than it would be in 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 other spheres i mean the 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 change that that will introduce to just the dynamic and the culture uh, there i think is is you, you almost can't overstate it agreed yeah uh, again, uh, 313-577-1019 on the phones. Uh, let's go quickly to Christopher. Christopher, welcome to the show. Hello. Um, what we need to understand is that to be anti-racist, uh, we must denounce race and nationalism from all United States of American government agencies, uh, le- legislatively, judicially, and administratively and uh, executively. And uh, we need to do so and level the playing field at the same time economically because this is all economically based upon race. Race only applies to systematic racism, and uh, the systemic racism is applied to eugenic marginalistic capitalism. And when we don't have the fail-safes in place 
to fund everything that we're talking about. Uh, the bipartisan, uh, 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 Amer- like I would say, the bipartisan white nationalism then has the opportunity to control our politics mm. and through the confusion of race as the issues of race are brought to the forefront. Yeah. Uh, Christopher, uh, really, really, really great point uh, to inject into the conversation there. I really appreciate um, I really appreciate that uh, that call and those comments. Okay, uh, Barb McQuaid and Jelani Jefferson Exum. It's really great to have uh, both of you here, as always, here to talk about these things on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Thank Stephen. Thank you so much. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when I'm going to talk with Affirmations Executive Director Dave Garcia about new laws targeting the LGBTQ community. And we're going to talk about the U.S. Senate's vote to make daylight savings time permanent. Are you in favor of that? And stop springing forward and falling back an hour every six months. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.